0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. And this is Jesse.
1: My name's Luke. And I'm Eric.
0: Hello, everybody. Let's do it. World spanning uh, SFF Audio Podcast.
1: I think we're in four time zones here, aren't we? Four, three or four, three or four time zones?
0: Definitely four time zones. That's right. And
1: not contiguous.
2: No. <laughs> well, it's partially contiguous, but no. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about uh, the yellow peril and the various variations that, of the meme throughout the culture of science fiction and fantasy and wherever else it takes us. Sounds okay. good. Yeah. So Great. where should we start?
0: I, we should start with the insidious Doctor Fu Manchu. All right, let's start there. <laughs> well,
1: just a quick clarification here, because I'd never, I'd heard of the mysterious Fu Manchu, and then you guys were talking about the insidious Fu Manchu, and then when I finished the story, I uh, uh, I listened to an audio version of it, and then I looked it up on uh, on Wikipedia, and I realised that the mysterious Fu Manchu is the insid- insidious Fu Manchu. It's just in England or in Europe we have a different name for it. That's right. The mystery,
2: the mystery of Doctor Fu Manchu, is what it says. Yeah. Uh,
1: Oh, is it the mystery uh, yes. Yeah, the mystery yeah. up.
2: But um, what's interesting also is that this is um, actually a fix-up novel. It's not a uh, – and it, if you – now that you've read it, you've probably noticed it's kind of disjointed.
0: Yeah, I was going to say oh, yeah, that, that makes perfect disjointed. sense to me, yeah. yeah,
2: It does totally make sense, and that's what I, I discovered this morning as well. Uh, fix-up yeah, novels I'll, tend to be disjointed. And this way The different.
1: way it works is – I might as well just explain the uh, – explain a bit sure. of the uh, – Uh, the novel, is that you immediately know who the bad guy is. And of course it is Fu Manchu. They're just like, there's this bad guy, he's Fu Manchu, and we've got to stop him, and he's doing bad stuff. And then it just keeps, it's like these cycles of almost catching him, him doing something bad, and then him getting away by some trickery or weird poison or drugs or all this other kind of stuff. And then it just starts again, and they go and try and save another person before Fu Manchu uh, gets him, you know, Dr. Fu it's Manchu gets his next victim, yeah. and then it happens again, and then it happens again, yeah, so definitely fix-up novels, sort of lots of cycles of um, trying to find uh, trying to find Fu Manchu. Yeah. Now, there's
2: a quote uh, that is repeated in the novel, um, and it's also on the Wikipedia entry here for Fu Manchu, and I, I really like the quote, and I think Sax Romer really liked the quote, too, because he kept saying it, um, and I think it's really the heart of the novel. <laughs> Imagine a person tall and lean and feline, high shouldered, with a brow like Shakespeare and a face like Satan. One giant intellect with all the resources of science, science past and present. Imagine that awful being, and you have a mental picture of Dr. Fu Manchu, the yellow peril incarnate in one man. Dum, 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 dum. Yes. <laughs> in stereo. Yeah. So, um,. Yeah, I I uh, let's talk about the novel a little bit. Um uh I think it's terribly written. Um but well, I kind of yeah,
0: like <laughs> I thought so too.
2: <laughs> I kind of liked it even though it was well, really it, terrib-
1: I, I, I actually to be honest, you say it's terribly written, I thought the style of the writing was so terrible it became a style in itself and Indeed. I actually enjoyed I actually enjoyed because I was like I say listening to an audio book version. I actually quite enjoyed the just the weirdness of the language, and just like what, what, like, <laughs> <laughs>
2: hypnotic. I mean, uh, Fu Manchu's power is hypnosis, or hypnosis is one of his powers, anyways, right. and it it is kind of a hypnotic text because you find yourself drawn in, even though it's really not not that, not well plotted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's written. Um Kind of like sherlock Holmes has written uh, the, very the, much so the uh, first person narrator is Doctor Is it Petrie or Petrie Petrie, yep Petrie, and then um the hero of the book island is, Smith yes Don dun, dun, dun. yeah he's he's like the uh, practically a melodrama hero, um, you know everything he does is great.
2: Yeah, it, it seems to be in the exact mold of Sherlock Holmes, except without any particular skills. <laughs> he's sort yeah, of just he, a guy who really hates Fu Manchu. It you is know, one of
1: those things where, you, where you've where you just got, you've got like, okay, here he is. He's a great detective, or he's a commissioner or something Anyway, at the beginning of the yeah. book. And then he's, uh, and he's just a detective. But unlike Sherlock Holmes, who once he discovers something, he sort of explains how he works out. And it was this bit, and he knew this something bit there, and he used logic here or something. This person just goes, ah! Fu Manchu will be here, and it's like, well, how do you know that? And it's just, you know, it's it's never really, not a lot of it's explained. It's just uh, Fu Manchu is the interesting character, whereas the other guys, uh, well, uh, Nayland Smith isn't actually interesting in any way. I don't no, know. No,
2: no, I don't think he is at all.
3: I, I, if you don't mind, hmm? it no, does see seem you. to me. Thanks. There's, I, I at least would want to make uh, two kinds of distinctions here. One between Fu Manchu or any other particular character, his, his clear descendant being Emperor Ming and Flash Gordon,
0: mm-hmm. yep. uh,
3: but between Fu Manchu as the yellow peril and the notion of a horde of people who are culturally different from us, us being the, the white Euro-North American norm that's presumed in the readership, um, and personally indistinguishable. So we have the yellow peril, and, shoot, yeah. and then we have the yellow peril, the hordes, uh, against which we've got some kinds of uh, uh, exclusion acts, for instance, in American immig- immigration policy. Uh, and so the, the first distinction I want to make is between the yellow peril as, a, as an individual and the yellow peril as suggesting something about an entire unindividuated group. Um, the second distinction i would make is that i think that that the notion of asian population as a pressure on the north atlantic world goes back at least to tamerlane and huh. we if we take a look at different historical periods i think the meaning of the yellow, the yellow peril changes so in the middle ages and the renaissance the yellow Peril personified in Tamerlane is the scourge of God, and we Europeans deserve to be punished by this marauding horde because we've been bad um, in the Fu Manchu books. what we have is something that tells us something about our our pride, but it's not necessarily sinful you know and the, but by the time we get into the thirties. We are very much looking not at someone with a Chinese name, who being one syllable, but we're looking at Japanese uh-huh. Asians. And the, we begin to start making differences, distinctions between Chinese and Japanese uh, archetypes as understood in the West. And they shift into a different kind of political meaning when we talk about globalization. So in science fiction, you see a whole range of them. Let me give you just one more example, and I'll, I'll shut up. Um, according to what I'm reading, the Fu Manchu books were based on earlier books like The Yellow Peril by M.P. Scheel. Mm. And Scheel wrote those in the 80s or 90s, 1880s or 1890s. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read The Purple Cloud, but that's Scheel's most famous book, which was written in about 1901. I haven't and read that's it, a, but it what? sounds
2: like a good one to read.
3: Well, it's a book about this mysterious miasma that just grows and grows and advances and ultimately um, covers the world. And it's one of those last men on earth books. Cool. So one can easily see that the author who was talking about the spread of the Asian population – moves over to just making that the destruction of all of humanity. Read White European Humanity. And we can see then that some aspects, at least in Shields' work, of the Yellow Peril are not aimed at racism or motivated by racism, but rather at an understanding of what we are and what the things that we are doing will do to us. So the Yellow Peril is not only a bad racial stereotype, which it is, um, but yeah. it's also a tool for self-understanding. Yeah. And it um, changes from period to period.
2: It kind of fits in with some of the things I was thinking. Uh, you know, the the colonialism, I mean, this is right at the – it's published in 1913, I think, is the the, the book publication. The, the stories came out a little bit before that, so 1912, something like that for, for the – Yellow peril. Oh, I'm sorry for the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu or the mystery of Fu Manchu, um, and this is right, right before you know the Great War for, uh, you know, uh, World War One, Col- the colonialism war basically, um, and it, it all the language that is it's it's all about our race and their race, right? In the right. In, insidious Fu Manchu, we've got the yellow peril. He is the embodiment of the yellow race. Whereas our white race has control of the East, right, in India and Burma, where, where um, Nylon Smith has just come from, um, as opposed to China, which is actually where, uh, I guess, Fu Manchu is supposed to be from. He's actually operating in Burma, and, and he uses Thuggies, which is, you know, from India. So it's kind of a little strange. <laughs> I, think, I think perhaps Sax Romer has some knowledge of Burma, but he wanted to said it in China, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it does sort of play out um, in my mind, the way I, I, I came to understand the book is that I liked Fu Manchu's, I, I was sympathetic to Fu Manchu's position. You know, I wanted Fu Manchu to win because <laughs> the racism was so horrible coming out of the mouths of Nyland Smith uh, and uh, Dr. Petrie and, uh, you know, what they represent. Um, you know colonialism under white the white man is okay, whereas if it was reversed and the yellow peril had taken over uh, you know Britain and I guess North America and everything else European, that would be terrible. Well, <laughs> I guess that's how they feel in China, right? you know uh, given the the Brotherhood of the flaming fist or, or no uh, what's it what's it the uh, there's an uprising in China um, I can't remember in the in the 19th century, which sort of fomented part of the fear of um, the yellow peril.
0: Yeah, I, I found a quote here that's kind of interesting. Um, it says, at last they were face to face, the head of the great yellow movement and the man who fought on behalf of the entire white race. Yeah. How can I paint the individual who now stood before us, perhaps the greatest genius of modern times? So it's interesting that um, I agree with you that there, there's racism everywhere in there. You know, there were several uh, moments where I had to read the sentence again to say, "Did he really say that?" You yeah. know, and I know I'm a uh, hundred years removed from this guy, um, but still, Fu Manchu is the genius. Mm-hmm. You know, isn't that a virtue? You would think. Yeah, it, it, it,
2: it seems to me Sax Rohmer is very. You know, he he is become enamored with the character. Um, and that Nyland Smith and, and Petri and their various, you know, uh, assistants are sort of there to showcase how cool Wang, and not Wang Chiang, but (laughs) how cool Mm -hmm. Fu Manchu is. Mm -hmm. And in later books, um, I'm given to understand that the, um, the Fu Manchu becomes even more sympathetic, that... Uh, Nylan Smith and Fu Manchu eventually actually work together to stop some other peril, um, which I think is uh, you know revealing in that as you get closer to that which you are ignorant of, right? As you, I mean, Fu Manchu is actually quite interesting because we don't we only hear all these things about him. He's being told we're being told how great he is um, by the the people that hate him. But in in that way, it almost feels like it's a it's it's a good novel because I was entertained by the idea of, of Fu Manchu uh, being the hero and the uh, the uh, commissioner and his doctor sidekick as being the villains. I think it could be rewritten very easily that way just by, you know, doing a few more little details.
3: You know, in, in science fiction terms, we're used to seeing the mad scientist. Mm-hmm. And and in in a way, the mad scientist is um, is Faust, um, or he's Milton Satan. You know, the, the most interesting character being the bad guy, right? Um, usually, certainly not. The the mad scientist is somebody who needs to be stopped, like Robo Le Conquérant, you know, in in Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. But. I can't help but think. I mean, or t- t- take Wells. I mean, we've got Moreau, who is imposing himself on all of those other races, which is to say the the beasts that he is trying to transform and make them function for him as his subjects in his image. It's a lot like you know white man's burden and British colonialism. Mm-hmm. But the same guy who writes the Island of Doctor Moreau writes the Invisible Man, and the Invisible Man. Uh, if you will recall, uh, he is forced to uh, to run away um, because his researches into invisibility uh, uh, are getting him into trouble. And once he is invisible, he decides that he's going to rule this rural uh, county, the suburban county actually in England. Ultimately, he gets surrounded by the villagers – and beaten to death and when he is dying in the movie, it's wonderful, but it's actually in the in the book too, first we see his his circulatory system and so on, and then as he as he revisibilizes, we ultimately see that he's an albino. And we recognize what has been hinted at throughout the entire book, that the mad scientist has been Against society, not because knowledge drove him crazy, not because an attachment to science made him antisocial, as is the case with Dr. Moreau, but rather that society had initially alienated him because odd-looking, because his skin color was wrong. And yes, he's doing the wrong things, but when he's killed... Our sympathy returns, and we realize that a lot of the problem between our society and anyone else, including another group, is our society's fault. So to come around ultimately to understand that that other-colored other deserves our sympathy, I think that's really quite well-established and and very subtle and good on Wells's part, and maybe that's what you're seeing as you move through the, the Fu Manchu books.
2: I, I I like, um, you know, inspired by, I, I guess in part, um, uh, this book, uh, I've got in my hand, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which has the Invisible Man as a character in it, and Fu Manchu as a character in it. We did, i I, I basically been inspired by this this book, which includes a whole bunch of, uh, uh, you know, literary figures from the late 19th century, early 20th, Alan Quartermain, Captain Nemo, Holly Griffin, the... The um, Invisible Man, Doctor Henry Jekyll, um, and Mister Hyde, of course, and Mina Murray, uh, uh, Nee Harker from
3: right Dracula, uh,
2: Dra- uh, Count Dracula, and there's a, a dozen or so other minor uh, other characters from other books. Just in this first collection, um, this is uh, is this one of the books you're doing in your your graphic studies class?
3: Actually, no, we don't. We don't handle that particular one for two reasons. Um, one, candidly, I, I don't think it's as good as the books that we do use. I mean, just <laughs> a, as a book. Um, and two, uh, the course in graphic narrative is one in which we're trying to learn how to understand the aesthetics of a, of a medium that most people don't take in a serious and theoretical way. You know, we're used to doing that with texts, but we're not used to doing that with with graphic texts. And um, to really understand the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen well, whether you think it's the cat's pajamas or you think it's the cat's litter, um, you need to know who all of those background characters are. And that's a heck of a lot of other information one has to suppose that one's students brings to the table. So bring to the table. So I, it's easier just to skip.
2: That's, uh, that's actually how I feel. Is, is it, it, I was a little underwhelmed with, the, with the, uh, the story in the book. Um, the art's okay, I guess. But the main thing I liked is the, uh, the idea of all of these characters. They all are sort of contemporary, and they all have this kind of superhero aspect, which is, I guess, the, the idea behind the, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that, is that they are like Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, uh, a bunch of superheroes, but of of another period, and that by going back and looking the original source material, which I have start actually, Luke and I did a, a couple of podcasts on um, the Invisible Man and uh, the the fallout from that. And yeah, we
1: got quite in depth about all of that kind of stuff. It was yeah, we sure
2: did, and, and and I I think there's a lot to be mined in what in, in just I mean i I actually haven't bought the second volume because i'm I'm still mining the first one for <laughs> for good stuff um what about uh in your graphic studies you've got another book which we talked about before the podcast started um uh if I ran the zoo is that uh in your yes class
3: yeah we do use that one uh dr Seuss uh is uh really incredibly important in the development of children's literature, and he's also important in uh, coming to understand the relationship between words and text, what's available for it uh, more generally. Uh, if I ran uh, one of his more popular books, it turns out that the real man, uh, Theodore Geisel, his dad was a zookeeper um, at a period of his life, and so he, the young, the boy who grows up to write this book, gets to go and see what it's like to uh, to run a zoo, which is, after all, a place of captivity where the exotic is preserved for the um, nowadays we would say education, but certainly always the entertainment and amusement of the society outside the walls. So, in this book. Gerald imagines, what if I ran the zoo? Well, I'd go and get these wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. <clears throat> the things that he would get include, as you know, some things that reflect the prevailing racism of the time. So, you know, the the most obvious one is that page that we were discussing where he says, I'll hunt in the mountains of Zamba Matant with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant. And capture a fine fluffy bird called the Bustard who only eats custard with sauce made of mustard. And also a very fine beast called the Flustered who only eats mustard with sauce made of custard. And the the two-page spread shows these happy, identically faced, obviously Chinese men carrying a cage on their head. And in the cage is this huge furry beast also with slanty eyes. And on top of the cage is Gerald in a smiling but otherwise quite exact great white hunter pose. Um, And we know that it's not just that he's happy and the the Chinese bearers are happy because of the capture. Because on the left-hand side of the two-page spread, we have another clear member of the local human variety carrying another big bird that he's captured down the other side of the mountain, and that human is slanty-eyed and happy too. So it's showing us that we've got all these happy slanty-eyed people with all of their oddities, and they're happy to have their oddities in their own world, and they're happy to share their oddities with us. Well, it's a children's book, of course, but it's based here on the notion of the extreme otherness of the people just like the animals that are captured in the zoo. Uh, my students a few years ago would read this and criticize Zeus strongly. The last couple of years, the students have actually had a great deal of sympathy for it, saying, Well, you know, this is written way back when, and people just assumed that. And after all, he's not criticizing them, he's kind of enjoying their difference. It's just a depiction. So, Exactly. A
1: mistaken depiction, but just a depiction rather than a, a, a negative comment in the muscle.
2: Well, uh, it might – It's a pathetic one. You, you yeah. know, it might, though, be also the case of uh, – you know, in the story of the Jonah, Jonah and the whale, um, uh, originally it says fish in the book, right, in the Bible. Um, and the idea was that, well, back then people didn't know that uh, whales weren't fish. Well, probably they did know that whales were fish. It's just we've come to have a separate word for that kind of fish, right? We call them whales. <laughs> it's not that, you know, if it is a giant whale that swallows Jonah, not that this is a true story, but it, if it is a whale that swallows Jonah, uh, then calling it a giant fish in, uh, you know, uh, 2000 AD or whatever, uh, 2000 BC, whatever it was written, um, is not wrong. It's correct. It's just not understood to be correct today, um, and in, right, in, at, in the same right, way, the I, it doesn't necessarily depict a um, uh, a hatred uh, in Seuss. Although I note on his uh, Wikipedia entry, it says he did do some um, uh, propaganda during World War II. You know, uh, showing Japanese Americans as latent traitors and fifth colonists.
3: He, he, in fact, he was employed by the government to yeah. make uh, posters. Uh, But let's face it, I mean, look at what the office of war propaganda was turning out during World War II. I mean, it was consistent. Look, my God, look what we did with interning Japanese-American citizens. Is it any wonder that a commercial artist who thinks of himself as patriotic decides to inflame passions to support the American war effort by using – Examples of racism. It's also true historically that America is getting into a war in which its, adversar- its main adversaries, I'm talking now about the Germans and the Japanese, I'm not talking about the Italians or the Russians, but the main adversaries defined their justifications for war on racial terms. That's true. Yeah.
2: Uh, by the way, uh, that internment also happened in Canada. It was not unique to the United States.
3: I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, Japanese Canadians were. Removed from their jobs and homes, and shuffled off into the mountains to prevent their fifth columnists. Wow, yeah.
1: yes. it's funny you say that. I've never really thought of it in that way because you know when you talk about the Second World War, it's always like, well, they started it. But it's not just it. It, what you're saying It's not just, well, they started it, but it's also they started it with a with a with a, the, the sort of pure race kind of ideas behind it. You know, and I've never really thought that was. Uh, the, with the Axis powers, something that was so so much in common. Well, of course, it's all down to the sort of fascist nature of it. But um, but yeah. So when the, the idea of using like the the racial stereotype against them, it's another one of those. Well, well, they started it, kind of thing.
3: Oh man, yeah. You know, uh, uh, this I don't. This is not exactly science fiction, but but it may be worth bringing up. I uh, would guess that some of the people listening to this may not be aware that the the notion of Aryan. That the yeah. Germans used is something that they adopted from India. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's, it's an Indian kind of thing. Well, yeah. you know, in the history of India, we have a yeah. series of of invasions from the north. Yes, yeah, is, is it a Thule or something it was called? Um, yep, yeah.
2: there's a Thule Society. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, so right. nobody's quite society. sure where they're
1: from. Yeah, they come down into India and then from India out again, or something. Oh, like, but so. there's
2: also a, a secret German organization called the Thule Society, which is like a an SS um, subgroup uh, that started. Yeah, but I, I'm sure they took it. The- I think in, it had its roots prior to World War One, actually.
3: But the point I'm trying to make here is that the in India, yeah, as these successive waves of, of invaders come, the darker people get pushed further south so the the oldest inhabitants of india are now in a sense residual in the tamils who are mostly in sri lanka and in the southeast of, of india and yeah. and they are the darkest people and the high, the further north you go you the more political power you get the more literature you get and the lighter the skin you get so starting in the 19th century german orientalists began to admire that last wave of immigration as being sort of the highest group. And they saw themselves, the Germans, as being the light-skinned invaders who pushed into the swarthy Roman Empire. So the notion of Aryan superiority itself comes from the German reading of Asian culture. But it's interesting to me, at least, that when we talk about the Asian hordes, we're only talking about the yellow ones. We're not talking about the brown ones. Right. India somehow is not the kind of threat that figures in the European and North American uh, white consciousness.
1: Well, I think it is mainly down to the, the shape of the eyes as well because the uh, – like the – what did you say? Caucasian kind of thing is, is – you, you have white Caucasian and then sort of Indian Caucasian. It's sort of like the same um, – what you say? Basic – uh body type you know and then you've got like the mongol sort of that which is chinese you know the whole uh don't want to sound too racist about it but the the slanty eye kind of right. <laughs> view of it you know and uh yeah and the indians the indians don't have that so i think it is probably like one of the like the the eyes uh are the window to the soul and that kind of thing but
3: um i know, think so there's a, lot a strange of- way. I think there's a lot of merit in that suggestion. Yeah. Uh, I really do. But I do believe there's something else that may be at play here as well, and that is that Indians in general um were thought of by the British as brown. And right. so they fall under the stereotypes that Europeans, uh, including the North Americans, have right. used toward Africans. And they are thought of as hypersexualized uh, brawny and intellectually dull while the the yellow people are thought of as somehow a bit sexually um, less powerful but there are so many of them that they reproduce enough to become hordes um, and intellectual because of the depth of their own cultural history that is Europeans always recognized the depth of culture in East Asia um
2: it's almost an inferiority complex if you think about. I mean, I, I, I doubt that our, our knowledge, of, you know, the the standard knowledge of how great, Ch- you know, ancient Chinese history is, um, you know, in the inventions and in the technologies and the culture and you know language, you know, the literature. It's just a vast body of amazing, awesome, awesomeness that, you know, it probably wasn't as well known in the nineteenth century, early twentieth, but. It's very well known now, you know, they invented everything, basically, um, mm. in China, and long before the Europeans uh, had, you know, gotten out of their castles.
3: Uh, well, remember, Marco Polo's autobiography, mm-hmm. it was, in, in Renaissance terms, a bestseller. It swept through Europe, mm. and people were really impressed with what he brought back. I mean... In Xanadu did Kublai Khan 's stately pleasure dome decree, you know. A, a Chinese culture looked like it was something really, really important. In the 19th century, we have this enormous art movement, Chinoiserie. You know, where you and to this day you can see castles which have yeah. whole rooms designed to look like they're Chinese. Mm-hmm. And you also uh,
1: the, uh, the the pottery as well was was uh, a huge hit too. Exactly. Um, so it's not just sort of like the, you know, it's not just the cultural. Yeah, it's decorative and everything as well. Two points I just wanted to quickly go back to about first about uh, the Indian um, skin color thing. At the at the moment in the UK, there was this whole big hoo-ha about um, people from India and Pakistan and that area, um, females especially, uh, using um, skin lightening products to make their skin lighter because they're like here in the like in europe and stuff if you've got darker skin that's really attractive but like you say in india the lighter the skin the more attractive and they actually use that to sort of change their skin color to become lighter uh which is i think you know, that may be opposite.
2: universal uh for females though because um i know what, it, white,
1: whiter skin it, yeah. paler like, skin
2: for females is 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 more attractive than than darker skin darker skin denotes yeah. um i guess uh, laborer and also um uh, maleness, whereas uh, paler skin connotes femaleness, and um, uh, I don't know.
1: Maybe, maybe that's
2: true. High, but anyway, it was class it, or something. I don't it think was,
3: it's it was universal, a, Jesse. I'm of, not sure. Think of the I'm California sure. tan.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of like uh, yeah, in, in the I UK, th- tans are, uh, are the, the thing. You know, if, if someone's got a good tan, that's hot. Um, but,
3: but
2: even so, light, lighter lightness in, in general, uh, like blondes have more fun, right? males <laughs> seem to uh, be attracted to I, I'm not saying all males because i I have friends and I myself I'm not particularly attracted to blonde women as being the height of beauty however I know that that is you know the standard if you if you depict a female who's gorgeous um, generally they want to put uh, blonde hair on her and give her uh, if not uh, you know tans may be something where it goes in and out of fashion I'm not sure
3: to wax into stereotype for the average frat boy that blonde girl is the yellow peril
2: okay so she's gonna come take over Uh, I guess she's got blonde hair right
3: there's a a blonde comedian I I don't recall her name but she I recall her saying that um, people say that blondes are dumb and she and and women with with big boobs are dumb but she who was blonde and uh, large chested Said, I don't think that's true. I think that when a man sees me, it makes him dumb. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I want to talk while we're talking
1: about women is is the is the love interest, the female character in, um, Karamana. It, it, yeah, Karamana in Fu Manchu, not not Chinese, actually no. not not uh, Oriental at all. She's actually Bedouin, isn't she? So she speaks Arabic and. Uh, you're never quite sure when she became the slave of Fu Manchu, but you know it seemed to be like on the way to uh, London or something like that. He seemed to have you know uh, gone via um, Egypt or something. You know, that I think that's mentioned there as well. So, but that's very strange that she's like the the most beautiful, and I'm not never quite sure what she sees in the Doctor um, in Petri, but she seems to like fall for him at first sight, which I'm never yeah. quite sure why. Mm-hmm. Um, but in then later again,
2: books, I believe, uh, Fu Manchu has his own daughter. Um, yeah the love interest also the villainous uh mm. of of the various
3: uh, now executives.
1: i i kept on thinking i kept on thinking that that uh, uh Carol Manor was going to be more of a villain, and I thought that would been more interesting if she was but it uh, would have
2: been much more interesting but she's so i to think be but, very just just a piece of you know furniture yeah
1: but the thing is I know that now in my next novel that i 'm going to write i 'm going to write that story as one of the the minor characters because she 's like a she 's a um She's like a damsel in distress who's going along, and she's like, Oh, yeah, I've got to do this because, you know, Fu Manchu's holding my my brother hostage and stuff. So I'm going to write that character, but the Fu Manchu character is just going to be a disposable guy who she <laughs> she is doing the same thing to and kills them off and it doesn't matter if the fu manchu um is killed off time and time again because she can just get new fu manchus and but she can still keep <laughs> being the damsel in distress that's, so that's whenever another
2: she, whole another show that's the that's i'm just Shem saying this
1: is but this is <laughs> this is what uh, this is what i'm thinking yeah but like a continuous femme fatale with the with the with the fu man with the fu manchu uh style kind of thing going on and i thought that would be more interesting and in a way that I, that's what i wanted it to, to be sort of more of a femme fatale kind of thing but you
2: check out that movie uh from the 80s called uh, black widows really good movie mm. i think i've seen it yeah i think is yeah uh there's a quote here about Karamana from the insidious dr fumenchu it says many there are i doubt not who would regard this eastern girl with horror I ask their forgiveness in that I regard her quite differently. No man having seen her could have condemned her unheard. Many having looked into her lovely eyes had, they found there what I found, must have forgiven her almost any crime. Um, and I, I, from what I can see, she has really she really isn't bad at all. She does no criminal acts other than to be, you know, in the employ sort of of Menchu. Hmm. Um, I, I think what he's talking about here is that um, they they regard her as an Eastern girl, and uh, as, just because she is of a of interest to a white man, that's terrible, right? That's the that's the terribleness that she's beautiful and attractive, because you don't want miscegenation, you don't want to have race mixing. That's the most terrible thing ever. If you're, I guess, Sax Rohmer in this book's first book.
0: Mm-hmm. But he can't help himself. Do you recall I think mixed
1: race... Well, Carry on, Scott. No, go Scott.
0: Oh, I was just saying, uh, do you recall the, the part in the book where um, Petrie was trying to get her to tell him something and she wouldn't? And mm-hmm. so um, Smith told her to, or told Petrie to uh, basically... Uh, get manly on her, I guess, hurl her down or something and, (laughs) and then threaten her with a whip or something. And then she'll tell you everything because her oriental mind will justify that if, if she's being threatened, right? She wouldn't possibly tell you, um, otherwise because. Yeah, that was quite distinct.
2: Actually. It's, uh, I guess it's about a third into the book or so, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely, you know, it feeds into this idea that Nyland Smith is really not the hero. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, he he, he is so uh, dismissive of all these um, uh, all these uh, people and, you know, women. And it just, it, it, I, I'm rooting for Fu Manchu. I want him to win because <laughs> I got to tell you, these colonialist assholes are really bad.
0: <laughs> yeah
2: so uh, why don't why don't we talk about some of the other um, uh, other yellow peril ideas out there?
3: well uh, if, if you uh, I'd, I'd like to go back to huh? the distinction that I suggested before between Chinese and Japanese mm-hmm. which becomes very important in the between the wars period the 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 Chinese are thought of or are projected largely as hordes. They're just they're there's just so many of them, while the Japanese are much more like Fu Manchu. They're thought of as individuated and um, insidious, mm-hmm. incredibly smart, and so forth, and so
2: industrious and all that stuff.
3: Yeah, so I, I, I knowing that we were going to have this talk today, I I pulled out my copy of War with the Newt's which is written exactly in the between the war period by a Czech. And that's Carol Kapek. Kepek. Chopic, I think is how Chopic. it's pronounced. Okay. But yeah, the same guy who invents the word robot. Um, and he has uh the newts as blacks, that is the skin color of them as black. Um, and he uses them sort of as uh a mirror against which you can see all kinds of different attitudes. As the newt population grows in the world, different nations decide that they have to have different relations to it, and they discuss this at the League of Nations. The Japanese ambassador claims that all of the newts in the world should be under Japanese, quote, protection, unquote, because the Japanese naturally are the ones who should be in charge of all of the colored races while the English, the French, and the Germans are deciding what they should do with, quote, their, unquote, newts. So the Japanese have a very different – they pose a very different kind of threat, even to the mind of somebody in Central Europe when we're in the -the between-the-wars period, whereas the Chinese are already under the – because of the the war that had preceded it, they're already in the so-called Japanese co-prosperity sphere. And the Chinese need, in a way, to be rescued from the uh, from the viewpoint of, of the North Atlantic world. Um, they haven't been colonized in quite the same way until the Japanese did it. I mean, if you take a look at those strings of colonies that border China, they're a little necklace, you know. Uh, uh, they go all the way down to India with Goa, but, you know, it's Shanghai and so on. Um, we don't actually get China taken over. That's kind of amazing. They just they stay there. They're just millions and millions of them. Where yeah. the Japanese get forced into the West when Admiral Perry uh, sails into Tokyo Harbor. Yeah. So there's there's a military conflict with them, and they are smart, right? It's a, they it's a nice, are nice. Nice wrap up. Yeah, I, I see. Uh, i think I the
1: hordes just to come back to the hordes yeah. thing i think that's definitely like the mongol hordes i think that's come from mm. thousands of years of of horsemen riding in from the steppes. i think that's probably you know you take it back to uh, uh tamerlane um as well uh you know sort of it's always at the other end of the other end of the silk road or across the steps it seems to be there but it's it's very much like a um yeah you say it's like a, a horde coming from that but then you know, say the japanese they didn't have that kind of um, a horde. They had, I guess, they had ships, and then they had planes like this as well. But you know, it's it's a it, there wasn't that sort of like land connection between the two that you could have
3: hordes of people. So um yeah. Anyway, it's just exactly. A- I think there's also a kind of um, there's both a linguistic and a, a a visual iconography involved here. The Japanese, because of where they sit physically, have always seen themselves as the land of the rising sun. And their flag shows that great big red circle of the rising sun. Uh, and the word oriental means the place where the sun rises. Right? I mean, Mm -hmm. going back, going back to the Latin. And that is a place from which power comes. Uh, most of the Muslim world, uh, not now given the fact that Indonesia is so uh, populous, but for when the Muslim world was developing, most people were facing toward the east. To this day in Europe, cathedrals are aligned so that the rose window will face toward the east. The land of the rising sun is a land of enormous power, and the Japanese understood that, put it on their flags, and even though we didn't like to, we European and North Americans didn't like to think of it that way, That's, those are the, the symbols that we were using. And that was the language that we were using. So these Orientals got there first, the same way it's later for you, Luke, than it is for me, (laughs) right now. You know, we're all aware of that.
2: Hmm. And there's another science fiction novel that I, I think I'm going to have to read. Uh, this, uh, of the Newts. I, I actually think it might be coming up on LibriVox, so I may, uh, get a copy of that if I can. I think it's in the public domain as well. It came out in the, 1936 or 37 so we should be able to get that um there's a novel by robert a heinlein called sixth column which is um a pan-asian invasion of north america uh story um Mm. which may be uh uh interesting says um this book is notable for its frank and controversial portrayal of racism The conquerors regard themselves as chosen people predestined to rule over over lesser races, and they refer to white people as slaves. Quote, three things only do slaves require, work, food, and their religion. (laughs) They, They require outward signs of respect, such as jumping promptly into the gutter when a member of the chosen race walks by.
0: I've got a question for Eric. Um, yeah, I think you said earlier, you know, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, when you're talking about the evolution of science fiction, you know, from this racial stuff, you know, even the aliens kind of uh, symbolized races and things mm-hmm. to us being against ourselves. Uh, did you say I, I, that? Go
3: ahead. I, I don't I don't mean that we are against ourselves. I mean that we're using this to show things that we have done wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. So like the, the environmental dystopias and, and things like that were – were uh,
3: No, what I, I meant with – the example I was using was the Invisible Man. We drove out Griffin. That is, he was, he was alienated. His alienation was created by the people around him who rejected him as ugly mm-hmm. um, because he was white. This is uh, – but it's a skin color thing. Uh, whereas Frankenstein's monster is rejected because he's ugly. It's not a skin color thing. He's racially the same as anybody else in one sense, uh, but he's huge and sewn together and ugly. So they reject him because beauty is, after all goodness, we've all read fairy tales. Um, Dr. Moreau assumes that the animals that he's going to work on are lower than he is, and so by raising them up to make them more human-like, He's doing something that is ethically warranted. But Griffin is in a situation in which he justifiably knows that this is revenge. He's trying to control people because they have mistreated him. And in that sense, it seems to me that the, the racial other in science fiction sometimes represents the ways in which we, the norm, the the statistical norm presume that our viewpoint is the right one and the legitimate one simply because we are statistically predominant Mm -hmm. which of course is one of the reasons that the chinese are so scary to us because they are statistically predominant on a global basis and it's why we always see the white man when surrounded by natives in a particularly difficult position think of the beginning of the movie of the 1930s you know where the natives know exactly what's going on and the white men have to realize that they are wrong in thinking oh no it's just a superstition
1: yeah so in that way what do you think about uh, I was uh, I, I didn't manage to actually read all the way through but first uh, last and first men um in that the whole it's really strange because like the whole first like five or six chapters of it is talking about the different races on the world and it's sort of like, oh, and the Chinese think in this way and the Russians are like this. And and it's sort of like a shorthand to talk about an entire nation by a single racial or cultural stereotype in a way. And uh, and I thought it was quite strange. I mean, it's sort of like racism to such an extreme that like an entire an entire nation can... You know, it's just it's just a uh, a strange observation of the of the maybe of the similar kind of thing. I'm not sure. You
3: know, I I think I mean, you are right, um, uh, of course, that Stapleton writes with those broad stereotypical uh, strokes, uh, both there and in uh, Star Maker. However, I think it's also important, especially since, you know, most people don't read Stapleton anymore. So we better make this clear for those who don't. Stapleton's point is that we need to understand all of these things as human, that the more we absorb different possibilities, the more fully human we become. So in that particular book, Last and First Men, if I recall correctly, the fifth humans become telepathic because they managed to absorb the the little individual units of telepathic life that are the martians who have invaded us previously and so now we're even more human and at the end of the novel uh, what we find is that we're dealing with the 18th humans and those are the ones who are going to who have sent back this message through time and they're going to be the last humans but Stapledon was a lecturer in, uh, in an extramural lecturer in philosophy, and he knew his Greek and Latin, and he knew his Bible, and he knows that 18 is the magic number of life, you know, Chai in Hebrew, uh, the, the 8 and the 10, the letters standing for the numbers. So those 18 men have achieved a new kind of life. Stapledon writes with stereotypes, but he intends us to understand that the, the ethical movement is to keep accepting drawing in and uh coordinating one type after another rather than seeing it as an other as a zone of exclusion so yeah that's what i I didn't
1: see i didn't see him being racist in that like oh we're white and superior and they're not and but it was just a such a Uh, such broad, broad strokes, you know, because it, like, in the first few chapters, you don't actually know a single name of a single character, except some scientists are named. But then everyone else is just represented by entire movements or entire, entire nations, and they'll be like, oh, and a diplomat did this, but, you know, it's it's hardly even named because it didn't really matter. It was only what the, what the entire nation was thinking at the time, or what the entire national identity or, or racial identity was thinking at the time, which mattered. Indeed uh, indeed which was very strange i'm like saying i'm not saying that it's, uh, it's the same kind of racism i'm just saying it's like the to, to represent an entire nation with a single thought or a single characteristic is racist um, but yeah i do understand that it was doing something different there um also, you
3: know, I, sorry
1: no, Lou, carry on. go ahead no, carry on.
3: no carry on. Well, I, I wanted to point out that's a 1930 novel that's published yes. in 1930 um, it's published at a time when the talk of race, the eugenics movement, and so on, very big, very important. Everyone in Europe is quite aware that war is impending because we are now 10 years past the Treaty of Versailles, and Germany is really not happy. Um, and so what Stapleton is doing in a book, which amazingly enough, given how how li- that there's virtually no dialogue in it. Um, it was a bestseller. Um, what he's doing is trying to find a way beyond the language of difference, which is driving the world toward war. And he says that in the preface that this is important to to write this in order to see if we can romance of the far future, as he says. Uh, to create a myth that will give us a way to understand how to deal with the present. Yeah, so
1: I, I do understand that. I mean, it's 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 so much written of its time. It's almost painful to read, you know, knowing what came next, you know, knowing oh, yeah. what came. Uh, a few years later, I, I thought the the, uh, the always the way that they sort of what's the the cause of the everything is monocausal. So the cause of this this war, even though you know it's it's all based down on the on the stereotypes, the racial stereotypes, is it was sort of like oh, and it was just this one diplomatic incident which you know led to the entire <laughs> extermination of this way. Oh, and there was this one, and it's always going back to the uh, Duke Ferdinand down in uh, Sarajevo, where it was. Um, Right, the uh, the assassination attempt there, and it's like he saw that, and he's like, oh well, that'll be the cause of every great war in the future, and every great <laughs> war is it starts off by somebody raping somebody, and then they go, oh well, they were two different races, and where was he from? Oh, he was from France, and it's like, oh okay, so we've got to go to war against France. You know, it's that it, a very strange, a very strange kind
3: of uh, kind of setup there. But uh, well, it yes, is it strange. Is, it is very much, but, but it worked for Homer. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, the Iliad. You know, yeah.
2: each guy is represented by a town, right? Each or well, each yeah. town, each town is represented by a
3: guy. Well, I mean, look, Helen gets taken away, and that's it. You know, know yeah, we're yeah, go, no, totally. you know. No. are but then again, rape. I
1: with the with the whole racial uh, stuff, being, bringing down to it, like one you were just saying there with the with one one person representing an uh, – in entire town that's what you get in the bible as well all of the all of the uh, stories <laughs> of the patriarchs and everyone it's like oh and this person and this brother went off to be there and then he his descendants were the um, Edomites and these ones were the, you know, Hittites and all these. And that's just a way of like a shorthand way of representing it. Sort of like, okay, what is the relationship between our nation or our tribe and that tribe? And they go, well, if we look back to the story of what our, or what the two founders of these two different tribes were like, because they were brothers once and this brother did this to that brother or something, Oh, you know, this, this person did that. Oh, that was, person was kind to that. And you can really just see the entire kind of political situation of, of the land of Canaan and these, you know, surrounding areas as well, mm-hmm. just by, you know, that's what it is. It's, it's like a, it's like a, to the, to the founding of the, um, you know, to the founding of the different tribes, even though, of course, it's, it's, it's not that at all, you know, people now, are, oh yeah, it's it's was, the person is just, it's not, it was just, it was just shortcuts. And in the same, it's sort of in the same way that you can represent whole races by, you know, single characteristics. That's what they're doing in the Bible there.
2: It, it, I, 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 it, I think. It, sorry.
3: I'm, I'm holding in my hand, I, I pulled this off the shelf uh, before we got together because I thought it might be useful, uh, Robert Silverberg's Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Um and Which as volume? you guys, uh, well, I'm, well when I first got it there was only one volume. Oh, okay. But indeed <laughs> now I'm holding volume, I am holding what's now known as volume one. And uh, as, as we all know, this is the volume that has in it one story per year. That was voted upon by the science fiction writers of America as being perhaps the most memorable science fiction story of that year. And the story for 1944, which uh, means it was written in 43 or 44, when America is at its most involved and precarious uh, stage of World War II, is Arena by Frederick Brown, mm-hmm. in which a white American military guy somehow magically wakes up on the surface of this planet um, inside a a bubble that he can't get out of. And on the other side of this bubble is what he calls a roller. And this roll comes to call a roller. This roller is his obvious antagonist. It's a big red sphere with spiky appendages coming out all over it so that it can sort of roll around. Um, I guess sort of like Plato's ideas of human beings before – The gods split them in half, and (laughs) between the two of them is a force field, and what a godlike voice says is, you guys are going to have to have this fight between the two of you. So here we have an image of the rising sun from the World War II flag (laughs) of Japan against an American soldier, uh, and whoever wins that's going to settle the war because this godlike figure has de- or voice has decided that we shouldn't have so many people die just to settle a conflict so so
2: when star trek changed it changed it to a gorn what what was what did the gorn represent not <laughs> not japan obviously
3: clearly Green, not
2: s- sort of reptilian who who is that <laughs> i don't know
3: yeah. i well, think the it, uh, the story is definitely it's definitely japan
2: That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I I, I, I've read the story and I I didn't I didn't see that. But it makes sense. I mean nineteen forty four it is it is the period, isn't it? Yeah. Um I I I was thinking about um just how I mean the yellow peril is sort of a uh it goes with a bunch of other things like the red scare and uh I don't know. There's probably a few other ones with, you know, color and freak freaked out people Mm -hmm. being Afraid of something, um, and that they've classified it in sort of just a category of otherness. Um, I think if you do look at the 20th century and at least part of the 19th century, a lot of it is uh, racially motivated. It's uh, you know uh, the white man's burden, right? The uh, the class. Of, I mean, World War Two is is definitely about racism. Uh, World War One maybe not so much, but uh, there's, there's a, you know, it's the period in which we get all these invasion stories. Jack London even wrote an invasion of North America by Asians story. It's a, um, it's a sort of a, a thing that I think is passing away, at least around my parts. I don't have a lot of uh, hear a lot of racist talk anymore. But it, it, do you think that it's because people are becoming uh, aware of the fact that race is not actually science? that it's just uh, a kind of a, a paradigm of a cultural understanding of, of classification for for different groups. What are your guys' thoughts on that?
3: Mm. I think we live in a chocolate world. It's harder and harder for people to th- make those simple visual distinctions.
1: Yeah, I think what we should do is we should, like, I reckon within about... Two or three generations, we could make the entire world like racially non-specific. You know, we just got to try quite hard, you know, <laughs> and uh, and get out there and each do our, our little bit. But yeah, I reckon we could. Uh, you yeah, know, I don't
2: know. Recipe for disaster if you're making people have children they don't want to have.
1: I
3: no no I, I'm just, well,
2: I'm just in the in the of heaven.
3: I the uh, of heaven. The psychiatrist who's controlled oh that's right. Right? He's controlling George Orr's dreams, and Haber says, you know, he, he wants to make the world better, so he tells George to dream that there's no more racism. Right. And what George does is dream a world where everyone is gray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, another yeah. book I'd just like to throw in, uh, not that we need to discuss it, but I, I think it's a marvelous book that, that really does not get much discussion at all, um, is a book called Arslan by M.J. Eng, which is One in which um, the Asian hordes, led by a charismatic military leader in the twentieth century, managed to take over America. Um, And it's it's really a good book. Well,
1: if we're talking about successful yellow peril attempts, or you know, I uh, I recent well, I didn't recently um, years ago, I read a uh, a series of novels called um, Chung Chung Kyo by uh, David Wingo. Oh, I'll stick the link here. Uh, yeah chung Kuo, uh, yeah. whatever it is yeah so uh I, and i decided to sort of reread the first book and i and in the in the end i didn't bother i didn't get too far into it because um it, it doesn't it's not great it starts off good and it's quite interesting but this is the idea that in the future it's to set a few hundred years in the future but sometime in the 21st century chinese do take over they uh they actually it's it's strange because well, it's not strange, but it's, it's different from what we've been talking about now is that they actually um, they don't kill off white people because white people were too um, were too powerful, I guess, you know, and, and had too much interest and it would be too unbalanced. But all um, all black people are wiped out. So it's Chinese and uh, Japanese people are all wiped out as well. Um Probably Jews are as well. I'm not sure if, if that's true or not. But uh, but yeah. So it's it's just purely Chinese and white people now. And again, it's a bit strange because I, I remember so much good stuff about it. But I realized that the good stuff I remember about it was set over five books. Uh-huh. And as I began the first book <laughs> again, I I couldn't find the good stuff yet. And I'm thinking, well, I'm gonna have to read a long time to to actually get the same amount of enjoyment that I did. But that happens to me quite often. That I'll reread a book, and uh, and it's not as good as I remember it. But then a few months later, I can't remember what wasn't good about it, and I only remember it being good again. So I think I do actually selectively remember good stuff out of books sometimes. Um, Luke, you must, <laughs> you must be a wonderful
3: friend. A what? You must be a wonderful friend.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, so quite, I'm quite forgiving
3: of, of other people's flaws
2: well really i
1: just wrote a, i just wrote a song which isn't about that it's, but it's about looking back at past relationships and and what happens with past relationships is that they either you, you either only concentrate on the good stuff or you only concentrate on the bad stuff and you know the bad stuff is obviously every small bad thing led to the bad thing that went wrong and then uh, but then the same relationship, you can remember the good stuff and you think, well, yeah, and these two kind of things get separated into your mind. One of them, which leads on to the, like, the actual breakdown of the relationship and the other one, which, you know, the other side of it, which leads on to the, uh, to, of course, the the hypothetical everlasting relationship that you thought it could have been. But it's it's a strange thing that you do this. You can actually separate good parts and bad parts of the same thing into two separate sections and, and have it kind of a, uh, a polarized memory. That's a strange thing but yeah it happens it happens quite often. i think more people should should uh look into that and think about that
3: anyway you're there's clearly one. right about that um, clearly right that we there's a there's a wonderful uh passage in middle march in which uh the the narrator says that a pier glass so, so I'm, you know a metal mirror in a in a stand a pier glass over the course of years uh, of the the servants wa- uh, wiping it down will have uh, infinite minute scratches going in every possible direction uh, but you'll mm-hmm. still see your 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 reflection perfectly well and if you stand in front of it with a candle even though the scratches go in every possible direction what you'll see is a set of concentric circles. Yeah. Uh, But if you move it, you will still see a set of concentric circles in other words <laughs> the narrator's point being you know if we look at it a certain way it will take the form that we impose on it and that's what happens i think in our memories of individuals or of books you know it's it was a good book and all i can remember are the good parts it was a bad book yeah. and all well I can it remember happened the to me
1: with it, with a book by um, buzz aldrin and john barnes called encounter with tiber it's like i you know i read that when i was much younger and then i and I just remember all the good parts of it. And then I read it and I'm like, this is terrible. You know, I mean, there's so much of it was bad. And then, like I say, about six months later, I'm, I'm thinking back to it. I'm like, I can't remember. You know, I can just remember enjoying it again because there is, there is some good stuff in there. But then there's a lot of weird stuff in there as well, which yeah, doesn't, doesn't really work. Yeah. Um,
3: have any of you guys read China Mountain Zhang? Nope. No. no, I have not. Um, uh, it's by um, Maureen McHugh. I think it is a, a, a terrific book. It's a book that I've recommended to other people, and they still like it, too. So I think it has held up. It is one you can come back to. The The title character is uh, an American. Uh, this, his name is China Mountain Zhang, if you take his Chinese name uh, he's and translate it into English. Uh, he's a New Yorker. Uh, Living in a future world in which China has become simply the completely dominant power, and the United States is living in a kind of Finlandized relationship to uh, um, America, to China as Finland did during the Soviet uh, period under uh, the Soviet Union, and we get a very interesting picture of what Chinese culture means if the Yellow Peril wins, because. We have these enormous masses of people, most of whom go undifferentiated and clearly now control the entire world. They also, like Fu Manchu, are incredibly smart. They are the technological leaders of the entire world, and yet they are so puritanical, they are so precise and – and. Um, relentless in putting forward their own views of things, uh, their their cultural norms, that they become inherently uh, an assault on the notion of individual freedom. And this is a book, I, uh, I'd have to look up the date, but I think from the 70s or 80s. Um, 93. No, it's, got, it's got to be the 80s. 92.
2: What? 92.
3: 92. Thank you for looking it up. Uh, this is a you know it's well past the period of yellow peril that we've been talking about just mm-hmm. generated out of uh, the, the pre the colonial racism and then the the two wars to undo that you know World War One and Two and yet the stereotypes still are important in motivating how we understand we white in Europeans and North Americans our place. In a global world in which now we can't talk about them as the peril. They're not coming here. They're here. And in a way, the, <laughs> the book is prescient because, I mean, there was a new book published, uh, called, tr- called, uh, Superfusion, How the United States and China Became One Economy. And it's just out this year. Um, yeah, well,
1: that's what I was thinking when I was, when I, I remember first reading this, uh, Chun Kyo book. I was like, China taking over the world. Yeah, right. Like that. <laughs> and now I'm like, now I'm like, Oh yeah! <laughs> 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 looks yeah, like it uh, it's not mind, available yeah.
2: on Audible, but we should definitely campaign to get this uh, made into an audiobook because sure. it looks like a really good book.
1: Which uh, one this China uh, was
2: it? Called? China Mountain Zhang. Yeah,
1: Maureen F. Wow. Did you put um, a link up there? So?
2: Yeah, I, just, yeah, I, I just
0: thought it interesting to note that uh, you know the Firefly series, Firefly and Serenity. Um, uh, yeah. China had well, there was only there was two languages. Everybody knew Chinese and English. They and, swore in uh, Chinese. Yeah, and there, were, there was no uh, no mention of it, you know, any kind of threat whatsoever. It's just the way it was. you know. I, well, do, I think, don't recall I think, anything negative about it.
2: I think the model for that would be um, basically North America laid down by white Europeans coming from the east and, and Chinese shipped over from the west, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Canada, that would be, you know, um, people from Ontario – Uh, hiking out to British Columbia. Uh, Well, how do you do that? Well, the best way to do that is to build a train, right? a train uh, railroad that connects the two. And just like in the United States, that was uh, primarily done by uh, Chinese laborers, shipped over from the east. And I think this is where the resonance for the Yellow Peril begins, um, in in North America at least. I I don't know, uh, you know, in... The insidious Doctor Fu Manchu. It seems to be focused on you know the Limehouse district of London, where I guess was the resident Chinese neighborhood in London. Well, here Leicester we, Square. Yeah, okay, is that no? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just
1: no. I'm just saying that the narrator of the audiobook, um his accent was all over the place. But he's obviously American because he calls it Leicester yes. Square instead of Leicester Square. And there's a few sure. other there's a few other mispronunciations of names in there as well, which is no. no carry on, sorry.
2: But uh, we we have a. You know, Vancouver still has a huge uh, Chinatown neighborhood, but more importantly, you know, the the population of Vancouver, where I am, which is the end of the railroad, right, um, is vast, and the majority, uh, you know, we've got a huge Asian population, um, but the majority of them are still Chinese, and a lot of that starts with the railroad and the import, and so I think the idea in in um, uh, Firefly was that this colonization of whatever solar system they're set in is uh, in the same. It's it's the old west, right? In the mm-hmm. same way that the show Kung Fu has, you know, the Chinese point of view and the the cowboy point of view. It's, it's the same idea, right? Um, except in this case, it, it was uh, done without racism. I
0: guess mm-hmm. I don't know
3: because they uh, the same thing is the same thing is true in the United States also. Uh, sure. Of, you know, the the Alien Exclusion Act, the Chinese railroad workers and so on. But I still think we need to keep in mind the cultural distinctions that seem to get played out between the Chinese and the Japanese as viewed by North Americans, at least. You know, in, in the Detroit airport, the public service announcements are in English, Spanish and Japanese, <laughs> undoubtedly because of the presence of the auto industry and the frequent – Transportation back and forth between engineers from Michigan to Japan, and in in the Man in the High Castle, which you know, which we've all read, um, Philip K. Dick in 1962, writing in California at his end of that same kind of railroad, where we know it's Chinese people, and and San Francisco has an enormous Chinatown. It's Japan that's controlling those American states on the west. It's part of the Japanese co-prosperity sphere in this alternate history. So, Japan and China both represent threats, but in science fiction, they are reflected in different yeah. ways. Yeah, very different. Yeah.
2: When Philip K. Dick was talking about this in an interview, that that book in an interview, he's he um, he was asked why he didn't set it in the uh, in the German side of North America, you know the the east. Right. And he said um, all his readings of of the German plans for what what would happen in the future after after you know they finish up this war in Europe uh, made it so horrible that he thought it was it would be impossible to depict without becoming utterly depressed. So mm-hmm. uh, he said it in the Japanese side, which um, it, you know the Japanese uh, overlords are. They're not particularly friendly, but they're also not, uh, you know, Nazis. As, yeah, Well, yeah, they're not Nazis, I guess. So <laughs> no, they're, they're not. There are no extermination camps, you know. Um, and he taught. And
3: he they have a kind of, of, of elegant culture.
2: culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's much to appreciate, but also, you know, the the, the Japanese are treating American culture as you know quaint, right? Um, right. The main character works as, in a shop to sell little trinkets to the Japanese overlords.
3: Right. Of course, we do get the. We have alternate histories in which we're worried about the Germans winning, like Len Dayton's. I think it's Dayton who wrote writes SSGB, where where which is set around the same period, although the book comes out later in the nineteen sixties. And we've got our main character is a British detective in England trying to solve a crime in a world in which Germany really controls England. I mean, the the, the Germans won and. We do have Nazis running around in the background. One of the real differences, I think, between uh, that alternate history and Dick's alternate history is that race isn't made an issue. It's thought of as politics. Even though they are Nazis, we're not seeing concentration camps in Dayton's book. I think it was Dayton. Is he
2: I, I've got to read this book now, too. Yeah, it is. Len Dayton, SSGB, came out in 1978.
3: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, uh,
2: it makes me think of the uh the i guess the much more recent fatherland book uh by uh, someone harris um harris fatherland um which is uh set in the uh nineteen sixties um berlin uh in a, in a story kind of like that of gorky park if you've seen the movie or read the novel
3: yeah uh, I, I have
2: very similar story um seed um except set in nazi germany instead of russia um uh, robert harris yeah um he does a lot of alternate history um or uh uh, historical mystery sort of thing but um hmm, this has been a really good discussion guys Mm
1: -hmm. okay that's cool so what about north korea then now forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: they're well contained. That's hey, it's
1: really strange. I went past the, past the North Korean embassy here in Berlin uh, a few days ago, and they've turned it into a youth hostel. It's now a hostel, which is really strange, because oh in Berlin, in Berlin, like all of the sort of like uh, in East Berlin, um, all of the um, sort of allies of East Berlin, in a, in in a way, you know, uh, would be given like prime locations for their embassies, so, like the. The the Czechoslovakian embassy is huge, you know, right there in the city center. And the North Korean embassy um, is huge as well. And I think all the way up until last year, it still was was there as the North Korean embassy, this massive building. But now it's it's been turned into a hostel, which is a bit strange.
0: This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.